0: Recovery Elevator episode three hundred and thirty three
1: help people create a life so good for themselves that they would never want to go back because like you said, it becomes a point where what lies beyond recovery for you, right? What's what's the next chapter because I didn't get sober so I could just settle.
0: Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Tamar. She's from Canada and took her last drink on June 17th, 2012. I hope everyone had a great 4th of July. If you made it through AF, alcohol-free, then nice. If not, that's okay. No worries. Get back on it. We're going to be just fine. This Saturday, July 10th, at 10 a.m. PST, Pacific Time, or 1 o'clock Eastern Time, we're doing an open house Café RE chat. What I mean by that is, we get a lot of questions about Café RE. People are wondering, you know, what it's all about, what do the chats look like. Because of this, we've decided to do an open meeting for anyone who is interested in learning more about Café RE or, or just attend a recovery chat. You can do this um, this Saturday, again, July 10th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Go to the show notes to find the Zoom link, and the passcode is RECOVERY. Yeah, hope to see you guys there. Okay, let's get into this. I've got a great you-might-need-to-ditch-the-booze-if line. This one comes from Miguel Reyes from the Staying Fit ODAT podcast. You might need to ditch the booze if you report your car stolen, only for it to be found by police at the house you were drinking at the night before. (laughs) Love it. Thank you, Miguel. So today is July 5th. You can still sign up for our intensive Dry July course. You've still got 11 of 13 sessions left. Go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash restore for more information. We've got a killer cohort from all over the globe, and it's already been a lot of fun. Ari now has official merch gear. In fact, I'm wearing my Ari hoodie at the moment, and I may or may have not been wearing it five days in a row. Thank you so much, Stephanie Smale, for all your hard work, recoveryelevator.com forward slash merch. Okay, let's get started. Today, I was planning on talking about something else, more specifically, that all emotions are created equal, which they are, a topic that I still plan on covering, but as I opened up my computer and began writing this intro, I recognized that this is episode 333 More specifically, 333. Now apart from loving Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, I was never really into numbers, symbols, shapes, nor the placement of the stars and planets at the time of my birth. But as my journey progresses, I become more curious, interested, and more importantly, more open to all of this stuff. So let's move forward with an open mind as we are dipping a toe in the spirituality and higher power waters of this journey. And this topic can be somewhat divisive, but also fascinating, because I've learned there's a part in all of us that wants to know what's really going on behind the scenes. And spoiler alert, I won't be answering what's the purpose of life in this podcast episode, um, but I'm going to try to tie in some mathematics and mysticism and how that applies to living an alcohol-free life. All right, so let's do it. Let's talk about the number three first, and then we'll go to 333. With mystics, scientists, and physicists, the number three is considered the perfect number, the number of harmony, wisdom, and understanding. It is also the number of time, past, present, and future, birth, life, and death, beginning, middle, and end. It was the number of the divine. Some guy was resurrected three days after his death. I forget his name, but I know it's significant to many. The ancient Greek philosopher Pythagoras postulated that the meaning behind numbers was deeply significant. In his eyes, the number three was considered the perfect number, the number of harmony, wisdom, and understanding. Here's a quote for you. If you only knew the significance of three, six, nine, multiples of three, then you have the key to the universe, Nikola Tesla. The frequencies of the seven energy centers or chakras are all divisible by three. For example, the heart area has a frequency of 639 hertz. All this means is that the wave form goes up and down 639 times per second. This number, along with the frequencies of all the other energy centers or chakras, are divisible by three. Planet Earth, Mother Earth, Gaia, a.k.a. our home, which vibrates at 432 hertz, which is also the key of almost all New Age music, is also divisible by three. The number three is the foundational number of Trinity, the triangle with three sides representing mind, body, and spirit. Having it tripled, as in 333, three, three, as in today, is like saying Trenta when ordering a coffee at Starbucks. It's supercharged. I don't know if you guys knew this, but the three sided triangle is the symbol of AA. The unifying language of the universe is math, and three is the root of many, and this special number governs much of the physical world at the quantum level. So what does it mean when we see the number 333, as in all together at once? We've all heard of guardian angels, and so angels can't speak directly to you, at least in my experience, but apparently they send messages using the number three. And when you have triple that, as in 333, it's time to listen up. So maybe this episode is a message to you from your guardian angel. 333 means that it's time to focus on acknowledging your inner truths and head out into the world with more purpose. Inner truth, most likely if you're listening to this podcast, means it's probably time to ditch the booze or stick with that decision. There's a voice inside that's been saying, yo, we don't need this anymore. Internally, there's a beautiful tipping point that is going to take place if it hasn't already. That's when the voice or energy around your alcohol-free life or goal overpowers or is greater than the voice representing the addiction. This doesn't necessarily mean you'll never drink again, but it's a good indicator that A, alcohol has been ruined for you and will never work again in the same capacity, and B, you're shedding an old skin. 333, also signifies a period of intense growth. If you're on this journey or learning how to live a life without alcohol, then yes, you're in the Trenta range when it comes to growth. This growth is intense. It's the most profound type of inner growth we can go through in this human life. And keep in mind that all growth takes place outside of your comfort zone. So if you feel catapulted outside your comfort zone at this moment, that's okay. Because after all bouts of chaos, order follows. And that's not my opinion that's the way the universe works be patient things will settle 333 is a symbol of maturity or maturation i've heard and there is some truth to this that you stop emotionally growing when alcohol dependency is locked in and i want to cover the flip side of this is through an addiction you learn a whole different set of invaluable life lessons seriously don't forget that and i firmly believe this When you reintegrate back into society without alcohol, you'll notice you're equipped with a certain set of skills that most people don't have. These are superpowers. Qualities of intense resilience come to mind. 333 is a symbol that it's time to eliminate things in your life that no longer bring you pleasure or happiness. The key in this sentence is no longer. Alcohol for most of us was a great life companion. There was a time when it did bring us pleasure and happiness. Those times, like high school, are over. This can also apply to people, places, and things. As you grow, evolve, some people, places, and things will no longer be a match for you, making it increasingly uncomfortable to be around these incoherences. It's rumored that seeing the number 333 means that what you've been asking for is on the way. The first thing that comes to mind is be clear on what you're asking for when you put that out into the universe. Internally, for most of us, there's a part of us that wants to quit drinking and also a part of us that doesn't want to quit drinking, so try to catch that inner dissonance when you're aware of it. What you've been asking for is on the way, and maybe already here. The next part is for you to walk through the door to do your part and to do the work. Now I've been asking for a Top Gun sequel for 30 years. The new release date is November 19th, 2021. Come on, Lucky 333. I need this. 333 means the Ascended Masters are near you. Ascended Masters. Now, what the hell does that mean? Well, we're not going to figure that out here, nor is this podcast really about that, but it's important to be open to the idea that someone, something out there is rooting for us. An entity, a he, a she, or a spirit has our best interest in mind, even though the remake of Top Gun has been postponed five times. And regardless, humanity needs help at the moment and if a number replicated three times signifies this then well we'll take it before we conclude today i do want to mention the odds of us chatting about existence quitting drinking and you being you and top gun remakes and all that jazz in fact are incredibly low the odds of you being you in this moment are about one in 400 trillion according to astrophysicists The odds of planet Earth, sustaining life, and you being here are the same as flipping a coin and having it land on heads 10 quintillion times in a row. So as Laura McCowan would say, we are the luckiest. Simply being here means we've already won the greatest lottery of all time, and we didn't come here for life to perpetually suck. We got your back, guys. So before we hear from Odette and Tamar, let's hear from BetterHelp.
2: And before we get started on today's show, I want to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, BetterHelp. Mental health matters, and as we continue to navigate through the day-to-day stressors of life, it's important to have someone that can help us process all of our emotions. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. I know we have listeners from all over the world, and the neat thing is, This service is available for clients worldwide. The platform is super easy to navigate. You can log into your account at any time and interact with your counselor by sending them a message. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. I highly encourage you to check it out. So visit www.betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P and join the over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. This podcast episode is sponsored by BetterHelp and Recovery Elevator listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Tamar to the show today. Tamar, welcome. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm great. I'm really excited that we're connecting. I feel like our call has been on the books for a little bit now. (laughs) It has. It has. Thank you so much. And let's get right to it, Tamara. When was the last time you had a drink? June
1: seventeenth, two 2012. So almost nine years ago now.
2: How do you feel?
1: It's amazing. Honestly, I I remember when I first came into recovery thinking, I can't drink forever. (laughs) and. I just realized, no, that's not the way it works. You just have to focus, you know, every day as it comes. And uh, it's incredible. I never thought I would achieve this. You know, if you would have asked me nine years ago, I would have said, you're insane. That's inspiring.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's important to stay here now. Big picture tends to be scary. So, hey, baby steps add up and you're almost at nine years. That's amazing. That's right. Thank you. Tamar, can you give listeners a little background on yourself? Can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What do you like to do for fun? And what do you do for a living? Absolutely. So uh, my name is
1: Tamar Medford. I'm a a podcast host, a performance consultant, a life coach, and now a best-selling author. And I consider myself kind of a champion for people in recovery because my passion is really helping people in recovery you know, create a life so good for themselves that they never want to go back to their old way of living. And I live just uh, east of Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And I'm I don't have any kids, but I do have a niece and a nephew, which is kind of a bonus, because then at least I can get them all hopped up on sugar and Mm. send them home to their parents. And that (laughs) is so much fun for me. But I do have a spouse that I've been with now. He's also in recovery and we've been together for about seven years now. So, you know, we together him and I were very different, but I think that's great because it really grounds me. I, I tend to be an A type personality. And so he kind of, you know, he's that homebody guy, you know, that uh, we love to sit and hang out and go on date nights or watch Netflix. Um, But other than that, I love being outside and hiking and snowboarding, because of course, where we live, we can do so many different things. Golfing is also another thing I love to do for fun. And I never honestly thought that I would enjoy doing it sober, but I do.
2: That's amazing. I um, heard someone say earlier today in one of our support groups that Someone said, my bad days are still better than my good days when I was drinking, my bad day sober. And it just really, that quote came to my mind as soon as you said that that's part of your mission, you know, to make people want to create this life where even through the hard stuff, it's better than what we were going through before choosing this journey. So, I love that. I love that you like being outdoors. I know you and I were talking before recording about going kayaking later. So that's that's amazing. I think nature is healing in itself. So I'm glad that you do enjoy your time out there and Canada's beautiful. Maybe I'll come and visit sometime.
1: <laughs> you have to. You have to.
2: Awesome, Tamar. and let us know about your journey. I want to hear about your relationship with alcohol. When did it start? When did you realize it wasn't serving your goals anymore? And what got you on your journey? What got you here?
1: Well, I always like to start my story off with the fact that I had a really up, um, a really great upbringing, and the reason I mention that is because, you know, a lot of people have this perception that in order to become, you know someone who's has an addictive personality that you have to have this traumatic upbringing. And and unfortunately, that's very true for a lot of people. But Mm -hmm. for me, it was completely different. And, you know, when my dad decided to pursue his dream of being a video producer, we started to move around quite a bit. And so I became extremely shy, right. And I was always seeking that gold star from him. I always wanted him to say that he's proud, but he was always kind of the The parent growing up that's like, well, you know, you get a C, you can get a B or, you know, you did this, but you could do better. Mm. And so he really pushed me. And I think that's, you know, I thank him for the work ethic that I have today. But I it was then that I was always seeking those external sources of love when I hadn't really learned how to love myself. And so, you know, when we finally stopped moving, I was in high school. I felt incredibly out of place. I never felt like I fit in. Like everything felt so awkward. And you know, we—I'm from uh, from Holland originally, so drinking's not taboo. It wasn't something that we weren't allowed to do. It wasn't something my parents hid from me. But you know, when I first got drunk for the first time. I just remember, um it was like my world went from black and white to color, you know, all of a sudden, everything seemed brighter and clearer. I felt like I was in more control. I felt like I could be funny, right? i I really thought that I could be the person that i I, I felt that others wanted me to be, mm-hmm. right? Because I was still so insecure. And it just gave me something that nothing else had, right? It became, a solution to everything it, it became a solution for the good times for the bad times and just the way I coped to numb out those feelings so I kind of lost that insecurity or I should say I buried it for a very long time mm-hmm. and you know after high school I barely graduated from school um, it wasn't that I was a bad student I just didn't apply myself and in all honesty I just wanted to drink all the time when all my friends were going off and going to college and university, and then of course, you know, after that, getting into relationships and getting married, I had no desire to do any of that. I tried to go to college. There was a pub right across the street, and I remember one of my friends would always come on break and say, "Hey, we're just heading over to the pub." and I would leave and go to the pub instead of finishing off my class. So I actually got put on academic probation and just never went back. Mm. And, you know, because I had such low self-esteem, I was like, I'm just not a good student. Right. And unfortunately, as you know, my um, my addiction progressed, I start I wasn't afraid to put anything in my body. And so when I was introduced to harder drugs. I tried them, right, because I wasn't scared of it. I just thought, hey, you know what, if this will actually amplify my drinking or allow me to drink even more, because I was a blackout drunk. Unfortunately, I never, you know, it was, it happened almost every single time. And I would always work jobs back then that would allow me to drink. You know, I worked at a golf course, so I could drink during the day. Mm. I was the beer girl, which mm. I thought was the perfect career for me, right, <laughs> <laughs> It was that or I wanted to work at a beer factory. Those were my two dream careers at the time.
2: So during all of this time where you said, like, I obviously couldn't even complete school, everyone seemed to phase out of whatever this normal party phase seems to be for people. And then we, quote unquote, grow up. Did you connect the dots that it was related to alcohol? Or were you just like, it's just not for me. I'm not cut out for this did you start questioning the substance use? I only ask, it sounds obvious, but a lot of people, it, it, it's the last thing we think could be the problem. So I'm just curious about your experience. It, it's the same for me. I
1: never questioned that it was actually the alcohol. I just thought this is how life is because mm. of course all the really great friends I had, I still have them today actually, but we grew apart. And I started to surround myself with people who had the same drinking habits as I did. But unfortunately, hanging out with those people just brought me down a darker and darker path, right? And I started using heavier drugs. I started losing jobs. I became a chronic yo yo dieter as well, because of course I was drinking anywhere from, you know, probably three to 5,000 calories in alcohol every single weekend. And that wasn't Mm -hmm. including the week. Mm -hmm. And so I also have an addiction with food. And so, you know, this just became something that happened over and over and over again. And I slipped into a depression. Of course, alcohol, as you know, does not help that at all. But I really couldn't see that I had a problem with alcohol because I was so busy blaming the world for everything that had gone wrong and wrong in my life. And my dad actually tried at certain points in my life to stop me and I remember he'd come over and he'd say, you know, you're irresponsible. And what are you doing? And, you know, you need to save money. You need to grow up. And I just thought he was the meanest person on the face mm-hmm. of the planet. Right. Because <sighs> it was never the alcohol that was the problem. It was all, always everything else.
2: And it, it, you probably were feeling like it wasn't anything but you. You know, when you're getting that feedback, it's like, I'm the problem then. I'm not being responsible. I'm not having this adulthood that I should be having. And that, in my opinion, really increases the shame. I mean, especially you and I have that in common, the people pleasing and trying to make everyone happy, it just has a way of backfiring, and really affecting us and making you probably drink more and use more drugs. So what happened afterwards, Tamar? What ended up happening a few years later, once you were already experiencing drugs and into your depression and into dieting? I mean, you were going through Multiple issues at the same time.
1: I was. I, I. kind of. I'm that A-type personality. I like to do it all at once. <laughs> all or nothing. I, I know. It's, I still have that problem today. But now I just do it in a more positive way. But. I, you know, like you said, I started to feel that shame and I started, I was in a really toxic relationship at the end of, you know, when I was using hard drugs, I had got assaulted and I slipped into a really severe depression. I basically just used drugs and drank for two months straight. I didn't leave my apartment. I was actually living with some friends that had kind of gotten me out of a really terrible situation. And so I just kind of thought, you know what, if I do what society tells me I should do, so I should get married, I should buy a condo, I should get a car, maybe things will get better. And I was overweight, of course, so I actually did, I call it Weight Watchers for Alcoholics (laughs) because I did the extreme version and ended up losing weight, which I never recommend. But then it was kind of a, okay, let's see how I can fill the void that was inside me, right? I never thought that I should fill that myself. So I met my, who's now my ex-husband at the time, who was also an alcoholic, because I thought, hey, if I'm with someone, then at least I can carry on my drinking habits. Mm-hmm. I had stopped using harder drugs, which was great, because he actually threatened me and said that he wouldn't stay together. So that was, that was a bit of a saving grace for me. Um, so I was able to stay clean for about nine years. But the drinking got worse because we drank together. We also ended up working together. And so the only time we got along was when we were drinking. We'd come home from work. We'd have a few drinks and then we could actually have a conversation. Mm -hmm. But, you know, after six months of trying to be what I thought society wanted me to be, I was miserable. I remember... At the end of 2011 is where I I say I hit my bottom because I had hit many bottoms in my journey. Like I'd been to places that I can't even imagine going to, but that was when really things took a header because I was unhappily married. I was 215 pounds, severely depressed, and I remember sitting on the floor with a bottle of pills. And I had a little dog, Um, he was a pug, his name was Rudy, and he was kind of sitting beside me. And you know, they do that cute head tilt thing. (sighs) And I just remember sobbing thinking, I can't hurt the people I love anymore. You know, I'm not happy. I don't want to be on this earth. What is the point of existing? Um, Because I'm just hurting everybody that I love. And so... For some, something came over me in that moment and I had this moment of clarity and I had this sudden desire to give it one more chance. It's almost like I I call it divine intervention Mm -hmm. where it was just like, no, you're here for a reason, right? You've been through all this and this could actually, you know, be a gift for you. And although I didn't see it at that very moment, that was when I decided I need to make a change. And that was kind of when my bottom, when I actually stopped digging
2: yeah, and I appreciate you sharing about co-occurring issues and also sharing about, you know, partnerships that we find. And it is very common for us to latch on to people that are experiencing similar symptoms or behaviors. And, you know, that sometimes only prolongs the issue, but ultimately it just gets to a point to where you got. And I, uh, I believe in divine intervention and I believe that pets are the best, thing. You know, they're just non-judgmental sitting there. I I feel like I'm currently working on just not being a fixer. And I feel like dogs can't fix anything. They obviously cannot talk to us. They just sit in the shit with us. And I've noticed that that's a skill to be able to sit with someone during their struggle. We want to just get rid of it or change it or fix it. So I'm really glad your pup was there with you during that moment. And you know that you had that seems like a dual rock, rock bottom moment and aha moment at the same time. How did that catapult you into action? Or what happened after that?
1: So that was right before New Year's. And I did what everybody does is I decided to set a New Year's resolution, because at that point, I knew I had to make some changes. But I didn't know exactly what that looked like, because I still didn't want to recognize that I had a problem with alcohol. And so I actually decided to get a gym membership and I went into the gym. I started working out for about a month by myself, realized this isn't working out well because I have no idea what I'm doing. And so I ended up hiring a personal trainer and because I really felt like if I could fix how I looked on the outside that would naturally heal who I was on the inside because of course I never thought maybe I should start investigating what it takes to actually love yourself you know that came a little bit later but so I started on this journey and I actually knew the personal trainer from high school we had known each other for a year and I truly believe that people are put in your life for a reason and this was definitely one of those times and so you know we became close friends I remember, you know, I still didn't recognize, like I said, that it was the alcohol, but on the weekends, because I knew I had to log all my food and I was rigid, I went full on into a health addiction as well, (laughs) where I worked out six, seven days a week, I ate chicken, broccoli and rice, which I still have troubles eating today, every single day. And I just, I wanted that gold star. And so it was kind of funny, because I would have to report my food every Monday and the biggest thing like what I was so proud of is I'd only had nine beer all weekend because I would have three Friday, Saturday and Sunday Mm -hmm. but what I would do was have half a bottle of NyQuil so I would pass out. So Mm. I would only drink those three. And apparently there's alcohol in NyQuil as well, which I had no idea. But I was so proud. And the first thing I would say was not how my week went. It would be like I only had nine beers on the weekend. And even though that was not a lot, because to me that was kind of like the first hour or two of an evening normally, I was really proud of that. And I wanted to shout it from the rooftops. And I remember my trainer actually took me bungee jumping And on the way up, she said, you know, I, I'm in recovery, I don't drink. And if you ever want to come with me to a meeting, and I just was like, No, no, I don't need that. Like, maybe you have a problem. But I don't have a problem. I mean, I only drink nine beers a weekend now. And I actually started I went out for one last weekend with my my husband at the time. And I brought a bottle of wine because I really thought I could control it. And this is the first weekend that I hadn't had a boot camp or a gym, you know, date or anything like that. And that one bottle of wine just on the first day turned into a case of wine, a case of beer and a $200 bar tab. And I don't remember the rest of the weekend. And so I remember coming out of that weekend and texting my friend and saying, I need help. And she actually ended up ultimately bringing me into the world of recovery. And so I really believe by making that choice originally, it kind of set the ball in motion for me to
2: find her and then also find my way into recovery. I love that because you're right. You know, sometimes the timeline is off from our expectation or from what's even perceived for people that start this journey. You know, the perception is you make the decision and that was the hardest part and it's downhill from there. And a lot of the times staying sober is extremely hard, but a lot of the times it's the issues that come up once you stop drinking that end up being hard to process, to live through, to work through. So I love that you shared, you know, that that was the beginning of your journey, even though you hadn't even reconciled the fact that you had a problem with alcohol because, you know, this journey is full of ups and downs. And, you know, I I, when you shared that you would brag about the nine beers, and that would be the first thing I remember my dad before he got sober, he would always come to us when we were younger and and very proudly say, Hey, guys, I decided that this summer, I'm not going to drink For the whole month of June. And this was without us prompting him or asking him, it was almost like he needed to prove it sounded similar to what you're saying, like, well, I don't have a problem, but somehow it's on my agenda to not drink for 30 days. You know, it's so interesting how our our brain works. When you reached out to her, did you end up going to a meeting or what were next steps in terms of drinking?
1: I did. Um I stopped that weekend that was actually the last weekend that I took a drink and I remember she took me to a meeting and I sat there in the beginning and I'm looking around the room and I'm like I'm not like you people like I'm classy, you know, I had a good upbringing. I was a very functioning alcoholic at the time. It was really only in my early stages of addiction where things got really really bad, but she said, "You know what? You got to keep coming back." She goes, "Instead of looking for the differences, try and look for the similarities, you know, where you can relate. And so I shifted my perception the next time I went to a meeting and I started listening to what people were saying and how I could relate. And I was actually shocked at how much I could relate to, you know, just sharing their stories. And I remember I I went to somebody's four year celebration and just hearing what this person had been like and how his life had changed so drastically after four years, I think that's what started giving me that hope. And even though I was still very resistant, because of course, you know, it's like, well, you need to start relying on a higher power and all this kind of stuff that scared me because I'm like, you know what, why should I believe in God? Because God's never been there for me. Now, of course, I realized today that I probably wouldn't be alive if I didn't have somebody looking out for me, right? Because I am alive today and it's a miracle because I put myself in a lot of bad situations, but you know, that was kind of hearing being in a room with people and hearing them say the exact same things and the, the the emotions that they were going through and the
2: way they were feeling. I felt a little bit less crazy. Well, and to your point, I just I want to make sure that the audience knows and I know we've talked about this many times of you know for some people aa works for some people it doesn't here at recovery elevator we love talking about all modalities and luckily mm-hmm. the movement keeps growing but i will have to say you know as someone who who has gone to a couple of aa meetings and it is a big part of my family's journey because my dad still goes you know going into your first meeting is really hard i really like for newcomers to set that expectation. You're not going to show up to a meeting or any type of meeting. I would like to think like a smart recovery meeting, any type of new scenario is awkward, strange, uh, easy to, we're easy to judge people around us. You know, that's a natural human response. So I really like encouraging people and saying, if you walk into your first meeting and you feel out of place, you feel like, sometimes, like you mentioned, and I appreciate it, if you feel like you're better than these people, if you feel like you don't belong, just know that it's normal, that it's like a first day of school, it would be, I think, not the right expectation to have to say, I'm going to walk in there and I'm going to feel completely comfortable. And everyone's going to be my friend and everything's going to be amazing, you know. So that's, I think, important to mention, you know, that whatever you are doing is going to be very different to what you were doing. What you were doing was comfortable and was miserable. So maybe these new methods are very uncomfortable, but it's only temporary, you know. So I, I appreciate your candidness in, in sharing that because I don't like, you know, hearing about these new tools without the reality behind them, you know. So thank you. Thank you, Tamar. What happened afterwards? Was that your last, your first attempt at staying sober has been your only attempt correct
1: it has and i think i i really um i thank the people that i met early on in my recovery Mm -hmm. and i love how you you know talk about the different modalities of getting sober because there are so many means right now right and for that just happened to fall in my lap i'd say at the right time and for me going through 12 steps really helped because I really needed to wake up and see how my life was my fault. You know, there was a lot of things that happened during my addiction that I was not necessarily was my fault, but I had always set the ball in motion. And so I really had to start doing the work and it felt uncomfortable. I think I cried more in my first year of recovery than I ever have my entire life. Like I'm like, what is this water falling down my face? Like, you know, because I was always told that you kind of stop growing when you start drinking because I used alcohol to mask everything, right? If I was happy, if I was sad. And so I never had to learn how to deal with my emotions. And so that was kind of the first step is learning what that meant, that it's okay to not be okay. And then to start cleaning up my life, right? That was, a—I think that was a big relief. I would say in early recovery, it was all about building my foundation, right? It's learning to accept the fact that when I have a drink, this is what happens. You know, we call it playing the tape through. But I can clearly see that today, like there's not one part of me that wants to tempt having a drink, because I know exactly where that's going to lead. And so I think early recovery, having people in my life, and especially developing those friendships over time where people were hard on me, people hurt my feelings, they questioned what I was doing. And normally I'd get really offended at that but I think that probably saved my life and you know I work with other people who want to get sober and they go through different methods as well but that's what I try to do it's like that loving tough love in a way if that makes sense you know like making sure you kind of call them out on their things so they can sleep on it and go well maybe they're right right they have a really great life and so I think that was important as as people being willing to tell me what would hurt my feelings, but in a very loving and kind way. And so I could make sure to fix that and adjust and I would say the first year was probably the hardest. I mean, I kept thinking the forever thing, but I just started taking it one day at a time. And so I almost felt like after that first year, I graduated from a course. and <laughs> I could <laughs> just be a regular member of society now. And I was great. I lost 75 pounds. Life was good. But of course, you tend to get complacent when you don't do the work.
2: Yeah. And, you know, there is that fine line between being honest and being brutal. You know like I love this tough love approach that you're saying and it reminds me of that saying that says honesty without kindness is just pr- plain brutality and then being too kind and then not being honesty that's enabling. So it's this you know when you're trying to help someone you do have to be honest it's just about the right approach so that you also felt that you could do it because I mm-hmm. do feel like the confidence is built with time and that at the beginning at least For myself, seeing the big picture, like you mentioned, of oh, does this mean forever between that and imposter syndrome? And asking myself, still, do I really have a problem? And the cravings, like there's so much going on, taking up all this headspace that I still needed to hear you can do this. You know, it is possible in spite of all of this. Other than having a a community and great support, what were some tools initially that were helping you get through the days? I mean, if you were used to, drinking at a certain time? How did you have to adjust just your day to day lifestyle to protect your sobriety in the early stages?
1: I would say I had to change everything. You know, I stayed away from bars for I I would say the first six months of my recovery. Anything that I knew triggered that desire to drink I had to stay away from and that meant staying away from friends because most of my my friendships at the time were the people that I would go to house parties on the weekend. And I mean, I was, you know, 36 years old when I I stopped. So, you know, now looking, I'm like, wow, that's really old to be having you know, not old, but to be doing the same thing that you were doing in your, you know, early 20s kind of thing. So, I remember testing the water a little bit in early recovery. I would go and bring a six-pack of Diet Coke over to, you know, a house party, and I'd go hang out outside, and I would sit there and match them, you know, drink for drink, and, you know, within an hour, I'd be drinking six Diet Cokes, and I'd go home, and I had this emotional hangover. So unfortunately for me, um, and maybe it's fortunate, I don't know, depends how you look at it, but I am the type of person who touches the stove twice just to make sure it's hot. And so it was really just learning what to do and what not to do. And if it didn't work out the first time, I knew there must be a different way and I wasn't afraid to ask of what that better way was. So I'd say it was just really avoiding those triggers Until I was strong enough and had built a solid foundation that I could be around, because today it doesn't bother me to be around somebody who's drinking. Now, I don't hang out with people who get drunk, but I know, you know, today those things aren't going to trigger me like they do. So I just changed my routine. I got into a healthier routine and uh, just kind of stopped doing what I was doing before.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I do feel like just like the thought of, oh my God, I'm never going to drink again. It's very similar to social um, scenarios. We think that how uncomfortable going back to social parties, that's how it's going to be forever. And I feel like a lot of people tend to go back and try to moderate again because it it's unknown. It's something new. And we think that the way things are, are the way that they will always be in the future. I don't know what it is about our brain but I do feel like a great reminder is you know you will probably have to either skip social outings at first or go and not have a great time or go and be so full of soda water and snacks that you're gonna have a different kind of hangover the next day. You know it's like it's gonna be different until it's different again. The phases and The chapters of this journey change. And it does take a lot of, I think, radical honesty and say, you know what, I'd much rather stay at home and watch a movie than go and hang out with friends. And that's okay. Like, give yourself a pass because it doesn't mean it's going to be like that forever. It just means it's what you need to do to protect your sobriety that day. So I, I like thinking that. Just like you said, you did all or nothing. I feel that it really equates to our thinking as well. You know, we think the same way that we act. We think it's an all or nothing scenario, which brings me back a good segue to the next question of the other issues that you were dealing with, you know, your depression, your food issues. How did those start evolving when you got sober? Um, A lot of people struggle with co-occurring disorders and there's a lot of different advice, you know, like tackle one thing at a time. Uh, If you go cold turkey with everything, it's much harder. You know, what worked for you? Because I know that you've been successful at you know, dissipating and diminishing symptoms in all areas of your life with your food, with your depression. So what was that journey in terms of the other stuff that was going on? Well, food
1: is still something that is a challenge. Yeah. Um, I love food. I think that um, I had heard, uh listened to a podcast actually once about a doctor talking about how, you know, carbs or sugar can be very similar to someone who is an alcoholic than alcohol was. And they said, you know, you wouldn't give an alcoholic two beers a day and just tell them to maintain. And that really resonated with me, but I remember after I had lost the 75 pounds, like I said, same with my sobriety, I thought I've graduated, right? I'm gonna be able to keep this off. I've got this great life. And I kind of, I slipped in and out of depression and anxiety still. Um, I got really complacent for about four to five years. And even though I had learned that, you know, you can, when you eat clean, and you feed your body good food, that it responds well, and I felt amazing. But of course, I kind of let off that a little bit. And I I found that I would go back to those old behaviors. And even when I look at, you know, how I eat food today, I would say 80% of the time I'm really good because I've had to work on that relationship because, of course, we can't not eat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're going to be in a situation where you kind of want to have that piece of pizza or you want to have those fries. Like, I love fries. And so... Love um, fries. I know, me too. (laughs) My nemesis. But, you know, I've had to learn... To apply what I've learned in my sobriety to those other things, those other areas of my life, because I was incredibly codependent as well. It's something I can find myself going back into from time to time. And I feel like, you know, a a few years ago, I actually decided, okay, I need to get motivated again. I need to go back to the basics. And I started really working on my personal development. And That was something I had done in early recovery and consistently did the work for recovery, but I wasn't doing anything to allow myself to grow. And I started doing investigating, right, about what caused my food addiction, what foods triggered me, what I could eat, what I couldn't. And so I actually started a podcast in 2019 where I was accountable, right? And I would travel a lot for business and that helped me become more open-minded because I hired a coach um, just like I had a sponsor and for food though this time and we would talk about different strategies and so I started to utilize those and I think the key for me was becoming more open-minded and giving myself grace because like I said you can't stop eating and there's always going to be times you're tempted and when I think about Okay, it's not a bottle of wine, right? It's it's not getting drunk. I'm having a piece of pizza here. I really have to just learn how to get through those times without going, without binging. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I have to work on. I think when I start in on the candy or the ice cream, that's when it becomes dangerous. But I think that if someone gets sober, they have the ability to also try and look at other aspects of their life in the same way to find out what those triggers are, right? And use the same solutions that Mm -hmm. they did with getting over alcohol with other areas of their life.
2: Yeah, the same tools start working for everything. And I love that you bring this up. I know I shared a few intros ago about how It no longer is about recovery. At some point, it's just about life, tools for life, tools how to navigate stress, how to navigate overeating, how to navigate toxic relationships. You know, it is this journey. Like you said, it's about personal growth. And it's really neat to make that transition because it truly, quitting drinking gives us a beautiful life, but it doesn't exempt us from challenges and pain. And from stuff even actually coming to the surface, I've noticed in my experience that, It's very similar to your journey in terms of I had to deal with multiple things, but also things that were really hidden start coming out later. And I have to give myself grace and I have to believe that they were so hidden because I wasn't ready or able to cope with them. And maybe now they're coming out because even though it sucks, (laughs) I can actually unpack the backpack a little bit instead of just spiraling downward. So with the food, it is tricky. We have a lot of people in our communities that always have questions about this because you can't quit eating. You have to learn how to manage that relationship on a daily basis. So just know that you're not alone. I, I Sometimes it comes as a surprise for people like, oh, no wonder, you know, and it is very, very common. Um, and it is about finding that root and all the gunk that is underneath our behaviors. So that's amazing. And I love that you said, you know, I got a coach. We have to continue to ask for help. You know, it's not just I got a sponsor, I'm good. We can get complacent within our journey, I've, I've noticed. And it's important to stay humble and continue to keep that skill of asking for help alive because we never know what we're going to need. You know, I feel like the further you are on this journey, you're like, oh, funny, now this is coming up. How are we going to handle this? <laughs> Tamar, tell me what has been an unexpected Perk or joy about this journey? I think the fact
1: that I finally realized that my past was a gift. In my time of complacency, I started to feel like I was settling. Um, I didn't want to work the nine to five job forever, right? I felt like I wasn't being of service. I mean, I was helping people get sober at the time, but, you know, I dreaded, you know, go- Sunday night going to bed, realizing that I had to wake up in the morning and I always I would stop taking action or not take action because I thought well who am I to do anything like I'm a recovering alcoholic right I've got this past I've messed up nobody's going to take me seriously and I think the biggest gift for me was starting to surround myself especially um, a few years ago when I, I started doing that mindset shift I started to surround myself with people who had what I wanted I thought well If I want to help people and I want to coach people, I need to start meeting people who are doing that and find out what they did. And those people, just like in early recovery, those people now encourage me to believe in my own ability to change. And they're like, Tamar, you have this story of, you know, 22 years of being addicted to pretty much everything. Like, don't you think you could help other people who are also suffering from this and limiting beliefs? Mm -hmm. And that's when I actually took a coaching course and I became a performance consultant because I thought I could, you know, if I could help people create a life so good for themselves that they would never want to go back. Because like you said, it becomes a point where what lies beyond recovery for you, right? What's what's the next chapter? Because I didn't get sober so I
2: could just settle. I love that. And I love that you are talking back to that voice inside your head, the imposter, I notice it doesn't go away entirely, but the relationship with it changes. Um, I think it was I think it was Liz Gilbert. I heard somebody say, you know, I thought for a long time that I had to get rid of all the negativity in my life, and I didn't. You know, it's more so not letting the imposter and the negativity and those negative self talks be the ones driving. They're kind of just hanging out either on the passenger seat or in the trunk. They're somewhere, and I'm just like, well talk to the hand, you know, they exist, but it's how we relate to those thoughts. And I do feel like they spread out more and more, we, we get more free, peaceful mental headspace as time goes by. It it gets easier with time, I promise. Before you know it, you're like, Oh, I'm not thinking about drinking all the time.
1: Yes, that's absolutely. It. And I think you have this ability to Even when the days are dark, to see the light at the end of the tunnel, and that's one thing that shifted tremendously is when I fall into depression before, I couldn't see the light. But now I know what that feels like. And so I just go through the motions, right? I know what I need to do every day, and everything else is okay. And
2: I know the light's going to come eventually. Thank you, Tamar. We've reached the rapid fire round. So if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? Uh I'm ready. All right. If you could talk to Tamar on day one, or young Tamar, what would you say? I would say keep
1: being open minded and willing to learn, you know, never shut yourself off from having new experiences. And don't wait till you're ready. You know, if something aligns with your purpose and your values, take action and do it. What are you excited about right now? I'm excited to wake up every single morning. Um, I used to hate getting up early. And because I've actually started to live a more purpose driven life and do what I'm excited about. I love waking up at 4.30am. So I can do what I love each and every day.
2: Miracle morning. That's right. Yeah. What is your favorite non alcoholic beverage tomorrow?
1: I would say Diet Coke, uh, even though I'm trying to, you know, wean off that a little bit. It's still it's still my favorite.
2: What are some of your favorite resources on this journey?
1: I would say podcasts and books. I listen to a lot of audio books and I actually switch between usually a kind of self help personal growth book and something like a biography, right? I like to still my mind at night. And I love podcasts, only because there it's like a mini education. And Mm -hmm. so any topic I want to learn on, I just flip on a podcast.
2: What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze?
1: I would say, find people who have what you want. I'm grateful that I found those people in early recovery. You know, it's, it's never too late to stop. You know, don't be afraid to ask for help. But, you know, it's amazing the power of someone else looking into your eyes and saying, yeah, you know what, I can relate to. I've been through exactly what you've been. There's such a power for that. So connect with people. It's okay
2: to not be okay. And it's okay to ask for help. And before we depart, Tamar, give listeners your own, you may have to say adios to booze if line. You may have to
1: say adios to booze if you keep thinking about it and you want to
2: justify not having it or your reasons for not drinking, I would say. I love that. Tamar, thank you so much. I'm so glad that we finally got to our interview and I can't wait to share with all of our audience and all of our listeners. So thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Very well, Timari. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to share a great recovery tool that I learned years ago in treatment, but I got reminded of it via the latest Disney movie. Yes, you heard me right. I got reminded of a recovery tool on the latest Disney Pixar movie. This movie is called Luca, and I'm not going to spoil anything in case you're planning to watch it, but just imagine this. Two Italian sea monsters are debating over whether or not they should go down a very scary steep hill on this motorcycle that they made with junk. One of them is terrified. The other one is super excited. The excited sea monster, his name is Alberto, tells his very scared friend, Luca, that he should go for it, that he should ignore that silly little voice in his head telling him all of these scary thoughts. Repeat after me, he says, Silencio Bruno. Who is Bruno, says the terrified sea monster. It's that voice, says Alberto, that voice that wants you to not do the hard thing. Then they go off yelling and yelling, Silencio Bruno, Silencio Bruno. They yell it as long as they can a few times before having a blast going down the very steep and scary hill. Bingo. The movie nailed it. We are not our thoughts. We are not that voice inside of us. And we have the power to detach from that voice. We have the power to tell it to be quiet. The reality is, it's probably never going to go away. It's a part of us. But the relationship that we have with our very own Bruno can actually be healthy. You can see it for what it is. Bruno does not need to be driving the car of our lives. And you can name your little internal voice whatever you want. Something that can make you feel separate from it. Mine is called Odelia, and she does not like spicy chili mango. She also loves drinking, so I dislike her. Every time Odelia tells me that maybe it's okay to have just one drink, I can go, silencio Odelia. What's your inner bully voice called, team? Remember that you're not alone, and together is always better. Recovery elevator This isn't a no to alcohol. It's a yes to a better life. I love you guys.
3: Get out of the story. Get out of the story and use the mind to locate the body. Move the energy inside by talking, walking, and most importantly, trusting that the body already knows how to do so. We cannot fight a drinking problem or an addiction Tell us something, and we must listen. It's nudging us in a certain direction. Listen to the heart, and follow your gut intuition. This will never mislead you. People often ask me, what's the one thing I can do? My response is always the same. Burn the ship. thoughts that always drive you to make the same decisions. It's these familiar decisions that always lead to the same actions. It's these familiar actions that always result in the same outcomes. It's these same outcomes that constantly result in the same emotions. It's these familiar emotions that give you those familiar feelings. And it's these feelings that always lead to the same thoughts, thereby completing the
0: cycle you will be empowered to change your thinking.